All right, we're continuing together our study of the doctrine of the covenants. We have defined what a covenant is. We talked, first of all, about the importance of covenants, and we said covenants are God's method for unfolding his plan of redemption, his plan of salvation that he declared in Genesis 3.15 when he declared that the seed of the woman would overcome uh, the seed of the serpent and he would conquer and undo the effects of Satan. And the very one that Satan attacked, namely the woman, is the very one through whom redemption from that attack is going to come, namely the seed of the woman who, of course, we know is Jesus Christ. And from Genesis 3.15, we find out that salvation is, is by grace. Uh, God had no duty to supply us with a redeemer from the seed of woman. We saw that it was by faith. God provided a promise of salvation that was to be believed. And we saw that it was through Christ in particular. It was the seed of the woman, which was the promised, that was the object of that faith that was provided by grace that we were to believe in. And so the covenants then are the unfolding and the application of that promise. We defined a covenant as being a sovereign, gracious, oath-sworn promise that defines relationships. And we drew that out of the identifying marks of covenants on pages 18 and 19 of the book that we're studying together. And so covenants are sovereign. God gets to dictate the terms and decide if and when there's going to even be a covenant. They are gracious. They always convey wonderful, unmerited benefits to those who participate in them. They are oath-sworn in that God always swears an oath. They contain promises uh, which God has made. And these oath-sworn promises then define the nature of the relationship between God and his people. And so we see then that the covenants um, are the central organizing principle of the scripture. And through the covenants, God's plan of redemption is, uh, is declared and illustrated. It's illustrated, of course, in the salvation uh, that was involved in the flood and the Noahic covenant that was associated with that. The salvation from bondage in Egypt and the old covenant that was associated with that. And then, of course, salvation from sin by Christ and the new covenant that is associated with that. And so these covenants are our covenants, even though we're Gentiles, um, because through them we have salvation. And when we enter into that salvation, we enter into all the benefits and the blessings of those covenants. In Christ Jesus, we who at one time were far off from the covenants of promise, are made near to them by the blood of Christ. Now, we've been looking then at uh, the problem that the covenants were designed to solve. And so we moved into chapter 2 and we ask ourselves, who are we as humans? And we said there's two great things we need to understand about ourselves as humans. Number one, that we are created by God. And number two, that we are fallen in sin. And because we're created in the image of God, we can reflect God and thus do very wonderful things as human beings. And also because we're fallen into sin, uh, we can also do very evil things. 
And so that's who we are when we look at humanity. There's a part of us that longs to be like God and to do God-like things and to be a blessing and do good to others. And then there's another part of us that is cruel and that is evil and that is wicked. And the contradictions in who we are grow out of the fact that we were made perfect in God's image, but then we were fallen. And so what is being done in these five major covenants that we're studying together is the restoration of what was lost uh, by the fall and the fulfillment of all God's promises in relationship to that. Now, we begin then to study man as created. And we talked last time about the fact that we are creatures that come from the hand of God. Uh, God created us immediately. There was no evolution. And that God created us for a distinct purpose, which was to bring glory to him. And that um, when God created us, he created us very good. Now, the fact that God created us tells us two things. One is that we're utterly dependent upon him for all we are in terms of our existence and our function. And number two, we have duties to him because as our creator, he is also our sovereign. And thus we are in a position of needing to obey him. Furthermore, we saw that not only are we dependent on God and not only do we have duties to God, but we're also made in the image of God. And we talked about the fact that that image is a moral likeness, it is a personal likeness, and it is a positional likeness. And uh, we are like God morally in that we have conscience and capacity for moral decisions. Uh, we are like God personally in that we have intellect, emotion, and will like he does. And we are like God positionally in that we are given dominion over the world um, we are put, if you will, in a position of subordinate sovereignty. And so our sovereignty over the creation reflects the sovereignty of God over the totality of the universe. Now, <clears throat> um, we're also a body-soul unit, as we saw. And the threat of death in the fall was the separation of the body and the soul. And so we are not just uh, souls like um, angels are. Uh, they are spirits. Uh, it says they're all ministering spirits sent to minister to those who shall be the heirs of salvation, but they have no bodies. We are unique. Uh, God doesn't have a body. God is a spirit. Uh, but we as human beings have not only a spirit or a soul, those words are interchangeable, but we also have a body. Now, as um, those who were created by God, who are dependent on God, have duties to God, made in the image of God as body-soul units. God gave us certain blessings, and he gave us certain responsibilities. And this is where we left off last time. So we're on page 31 of our study guide together. And we want to talk about the blessings and the responsibilities uh, of those who were made in God image, image as body-soul units. And uh, the first uh, blessing that we have is that we were made in the image of God. And this is what gives us significance and this is what gives us meaning. 
What gives you significance and what gives you meaning is that you can reflect God's character in your life. And there's no greater meaning or significance than to reflect the character of God. To be like God in love and compassion, in justice and righteousness, in goodness and mercy, in joy and gladness, in holiness and purity, that is the height of blessing. And if we could do everything that we do, and yet have no relationship with God and no reflection to the image of God, uh, our lives would, in essence, be meaningless. I mean, you look at the animals, <laughs> and their lives are, are functionally meaningless because they do not reflect the image of God. Now, they do bring glory to God uh, by virtue of their creation. Even the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. But what gives man unique value and extraordinary significance is the fact that he is made in the image of God. And secondly, man was made to be fruitful and multiply. When God said in Genesis 1, he says, let us make man in our image, let him be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the beasts upon the earth. And um, so man was put in a position of being able to um, create what God created. That is to create children who have uh, eternal souls who are also begotten in the image of God. And so man was not only made in the image of God, man was not only made to be fruitful and multiply, man was made to rule over and to subdue the creation. And of course, as we said, this is one of the things that God set forth as a reflection of his image is that we would rule the plant life, we would rule the animal life, and we would rule the, um, the physical earth itself. And so our attitude towards the earth, as he said, should be one of stewardship. We must have dominion by caring for, tending to, and keeping the world which God has blessed us with. We don't see the creation as on a par with us, but neither do we see it as something to be trashed or wasted. And um, this deals with the whole issue of the modern environmentalist movement, which I'm not going to discuss now. I've discussed many times before. But uh, once again, it's a pantheistic elevation of creation to being that which is superior to man and uh, instead of man being superior to it. And then finally, God made us to have companionship with fellow human beings. It's interesting to me that when you read Genesis 1-1, God said he did this and it was very good. And he did that, and it was very good. And he did the other thing, and it was very good. And when he got all done, it was very good. And the very first time God says it is not good is when he contemplated man as being alone. He said in Genesis 2, it is not good. First time that phrase is ever introduced into the scripture, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a help fit for him, or one that corresponds to him. And of course, we know the story, how that he made Eve. And so man was made to be a social being. Now, why don't you guess or tell me why man was made to be a social being and not an isolated being? Exactly. If we're made in God's image, what do we know about God? God is not a, a monad, right? He's a trinity. He's not a single, isolated being out there in space all by himself. 
but rather he is a trinity, and so there is um, a social relationship within the Godhead. And thus, if man reflects the image of God, then man is going to be a social being as well. And so what we have in the Godhead uh, is equality, right? All three members of the Godhead are equal. We also have subordination. Uh, the Son does the will of the Father. The Spirit does the will of the, um, the Father and the Son, right? And doesn't that picture the family? We have male headship. We have female subordination. We have the children being subordinate to both the male and the female, the husband and the wife. And yet we have equality. The husband, the wife, and the children are all of equal value and worth and significance, right? And so um, I don't want to press that too far, but the point is, is that God made uh, us to be social units and that's part of the image of God that we are made to reflect in this world. Now, that then concludes what he summarized about us being image-bearing creatures of God. That's who we were originally. And guess what? That's what we're going back to ultimately. Because what redemption is, it's a restoration back to what we were before the fall. And so it's important to understand what we were so we know where redemption is leading us back to. So redemption is leading us back to the complete restoration of all of the things that were lost. Now, the next section that he talks about is the test in the fall. The blessings that we talked about that came to man as a result of his creation were not permanent and they were not irrevocable. Rather, they were subject to test. And so we saw that uh, the existence of this test that God set before Adam in the Garden of Eden tells us that there needed to be a confirmation and an establishment in the state that he was made to be in and that um, he was untested and immature as to his righteousness and his relationship with God as one of God's created beings in God's own image. And so had God, Adam obeyed God's command, he certainly would have been established in righteousness permanently and would have been allowed to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Adam stood at a very important pivotal point uh, in not only his life, but in the life of all humanity on the day in which he was tested. And he could either become subject to death through sin or become established and secure in his standing before God, having gained eternal life with no possibility that that life would ever be revoked had he passed the test. Now, it's important for us to understand that Adam, when he took this test, he not only took it for himself, but he took it for all of humanity as well. And um, when God set the test in the Garden of Eden before um, Adam and Eve, um, it was a very gracious test um, because God gave Adam and Eve a very wide permission. You may freely eat of every tree of the garden. And there were lots of them. So they had this very wide permission. 
And then they had this very narrow prohibition. Just one tree you're not to eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he gave them not only this wide permission and this narrow prohibition, but he gave them the, the most powerful incentive conceivable because in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. So it's a very gracious test. Uh, they had lots of trees they could eat of, only one they couldn't eat of, and the one they weren't to eat of, God gave them the most powerful incentive conceivable to not eat of it. And that is that they would die physically, they would die spiritually. And um, the, uh, the problem, of course, is that uh, these were not sufficient. Adam did go ahead and fall. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that when Adam fell, he didn't just fall for himself. The Bible tells us in Romans 5 and verse 12, for by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all sinned. And so by God's design, Adam's choice and Adam's actions in response to God's command would be performed on behalf of all of humanity. And because Adam did act on our behalf, his actions were placed to our account and his curse became our curse. His fall became our fall. And so the Bible is full of that teaching. Uh, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And so the effect of Adam's fall is that he lost his righteousness by disobeying God and he died. That is, he became separated from God. His relationship with God was broken, so he died spiritually. And he also died physically in that he became subject to death on that day, the process of physical decay. We talked about last Sunday night from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In this body we do groan, um, that this body of this tabernacle is, is being dissolved, um, set in motion at that day. And Adam was um, surely uh, on the path to death uh, at that moment. So the point is, is that the fall of man brought sin and death to all mankind without exception. It made man morally twisted so that now we love sin and we hate righteousness. And um, our intellects uh, became an enmity against God. Uh, we loved darkness more than light. And as a result, we could not and would not be subject to the law of God. So we're born fallen. We're born with an attitude of rebellion against God, of hostility towards God, of loving evil rather than good. And it is uh, the purpose of God's saving work to deliver us from that condition into which we fell. So the point is, is that when we look at the fall, the first implication of the fall is that the fall of man brought sin and death to all mankind without exception. The second implication of the fall is that the creation and the fall together demonstrate God's ultimate plan for mankind. Even with the tragedy of the fall, God's plan in creation remains the same and he's going to bring it to pass the plan of God for man in the Garden of Eden did not end in failure. That is, God did not have to suddenly scrap his plan and come up with a new plan 
for humanity. Just because the plan got ruined doesn't mean the plan was then destroyed. Because in the Garden of Eden, God announced a desire for a world filled with image bearers who would reflect his glory. And through the covenants, he promises a multitude of descendants who are going to glorify him. And he's going to bring that to pass through the work of Christ on our behalf. And so in creation, God man made man upright. Man lost that uprightness in the fall. And through the covenants, God promises to restore us back to uprightness. Now on page 39 of your study guide, there's a paragraph uh, in the middle of that page, almost exactly in the middle. And um, it uh, starts, it's not even a separate paragraph, but the, the sentence starts at the end of the citation of Romans 11.33. Um, and the first word there is throughout. It says, throughout our study of the covenants, we will see the themes of the original creation resurfacing again and again. Okay? That's a really important statement. Throughout our study of the covenants, we will see the themes of the original creation resurfacing again and again. Now, here it is. In fact, the covenants are in many ways all about God restoring his people to the purity in which he created them, to a land that he prepared for them, and to a relationship for which they were first made. Now, that's an incredibly important statement. What is redemption? Redemption is a restoration of us back to the purity that we lost, it's a restoration of us back to the land that we forfeited. What happened to Adam and Eve? They got kicked out of the garden, right? And so the land, the new heavens and the new earth, the new garden of God is going to be restored to us. And so we're not only going to be restored to moral purity, the sinlessness that Adam and Eve had, we're not only going to be restored back to the land that they possess, namely the garden, but finally, and most importantly, we're going to be restored back to the relationship with God that they had before they fell. And so, uh, purity, possession, and personal relationship with God. These are the three things that they had before the fall. These are the three things that were lost in the fall. And these are the three things that Jesus Christ restores to us. And that restoration is accomplished in the plan of redemption as it unfolds through the accomplishment of God's covenants. So that is, um, is, is really important. We were created by God. We were fallen. And God is going to restore us back to that position of creation. Now, clearly, we can only be saved by God's grace alone. God graciously created Adam in righteousness and gave him an opportunity to be established in righteousness. And because Adam failed that test, all of us begin life in a standing of unrighteousness. And therefore, because we start out unrighteous, it's impossible for us to ever earn righteousness by our own obedience or good works. And so we cannot in any way get favor from God now on the basis of our works because all of our works are polluted by our fallen nature. But the wonderful thing is, is that Jesus Christ came along 
And he is going to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And what this brings us to in the conclusion of this chapter is the two great federal representative heads of the human race, Adam and Christ. Now, we said that Adam represented the totality of the human race, and when he fell, he caused not only his fall, but our fall as well. But the wonderful thing is is that Jesus Christ came to represent and to save his people from their sins. You remember in Matthew 121, that's what the angel said to Joseph. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And just like Adam plunged us into condemnation, Jesus Christ is going to accomplish our salvation from that. So, in a sense, God only looks at the record of two men, the first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And the one to whom you are attached determines your standing before God. If you're still in Adam, then you are in a position of suffering all the consequences that Adam has brought upon himself. Loss of purity, loss of the land, loss of a personal relationship with God. And if you're in Christ, you get back that personal purity. You're going to get back the land, namely the new heavens and the new earth. And you're going to get back that relationship with God. In 1 Corinthians 15.22, it says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And so now that we've looked at the creation and now that we've looked at the fall we see how they provide us with a vital background for God's redemptive work. The fall of mankind shows us the problem and the challenge which God addresses throughout the history of redemption, and the creation of man tells us what God is working to ultimately bring to pass in man's restoration. So the point is this, is that if you don't understand what we originally had, You're never going to understand what Christ has come to accomplish and restore us back to. And number two, if you don't understand what we lost and how far we have fallen, then you're never going to understand the work of Christ and the way in which he goes about vis-a-vis the covenants to achieve our restoration to that. The point is, without the fall, redemption makes no sense. And if redemption makes no sense, then the covenants make no sense, which are the means whereby God accomplished that redemption. So people say, oh, well, let's start out with a study of the covenants. Great. What are the covenants for? Well, we have to understand that before we can ever understand the covenants. The covenants are for the purpose of accomplishing God's plan of redemption. Well, redemption from what? Well, if you don't understand that then the process of redemption is going to be either misunderstood or um, become completely meaningless. So why do we spend so much time talking about the creation and the fall? Because it's the creation and the fall that redemption and the covenants are addressing in terms of finding a remedy for them. Now, that brings us then to chapter 3, which we're going to start next time, which deals with the promise of redemption. So we've seen what covenants are. We've seen why they're necessary because of the creation and the fall. 
And then next time we're going to see what did God do about this creation this fall? The answer is he provided a plan of redemption. And as we look at that plan of redemption, that single plan of redemption that has been there from uh, Cain and Abel, from actually the time of Adam and Eve, uh, clear up to the present moment, we're going to see that that plan is carried out through uh, those five great covenants that are, um, that are uh, revealed to us in, in the word of God. All right. Um, any questions or comments? All right, well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the fact that you made us. And Father, you made us in your image. And Father, that is a wonderful privilege to reflect uh, the character of God, to reflect the nature of God, to reflect the activity of God. And Father, we thank you that you made us as body-soul units. And Lord, we're saddened that they have become subject to death because of Adam's sin. But Lord, we thank you that that death is remedied through Christ. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And so, Father, we pray that uh, as we study the saving work of Christ and how that works out through the covenants, that our appreciation of how far we have fallen will become clear and the power and the degree to which we have been raised will become apparent. And Father, in seeing uh, that you have lifted us up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set our feet upon a solid rock and established our going, we just fill our hearts with joy and an understanding of your word and how it unfolds before us. Father, we just pray that you would lead us into the truth and give us... um, an understanding of the structure and the scope and the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.